How long, O Lord, how long? The prophet Habakkuk pours out his angst to God. And we're not sure if Habakkuk wrote this before, during, or after the war that destroyed his homeland and his temple, but we hear with clarity how devastated and disillusioned Habakkuk has become. How long, O Lord, will you not listen? Will you not save? Habakkuk wastes no words on introductory niceties, but goes right for the guttural as he opens his book. Life is a mess, a big, huge mess. God, are you present? Are you present in any life-changing way? Sometimes you and I also ask, how long, O Lord, how long? Sometimes we ask it because of a health reason. Today, someone will be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease every 65 seconds. Today, 5.8 million of us, along with our loved ones, suffer from Alzheimer's. But, a, but by the year 2050, that number will skyrocket to 14 million. But then what about the youngest among us? Not even 20 years ago, in the year 2000, one in 150 children were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. But in 2014, it had shifted. One in 59 children. Whether you're dealing with a chronic condition or whether you're dealing with a diagnosis that may actually have a cure if you can find the right treatment, we too, as human beings, sometimes wonder along with Habakkuk, how long, O Lord, how long? In his book, Tears We Cannot Stop, Mike Dyson, an African-American pastor and professor, tells about the day that his son and grandson were pulled over by the police in New York City. Mike's son is an anesthesiologist and had taken the afternoon off from his duties at the hospital so that he and his five-year-old son could buy mom a Mother's Day gift. As New Yorkers, they didn't own a car, but they rented one of those little zip cars for a few hours to dart around New York on their shopping trip, and the dad placed his cell phone on the dash of the car so that he could follow the GPS directions to their destinations, but he turned a corner and the phone slipped off the dash and into the floorboard of the car, and so he leaned over to pick up the phone, and just then he saw the cop's lights go off, pulling him over and accusing him of driving while talking and texting. Oh no, he said politely to the officer. I work at a hospital in the emergency room. I have seen the devastation of lives caused by such behavior. I was merely leaning over to pick up the phone off the floorboard. The cop harassed him and threatened him and told him that if it was not for his five-year-old son strapped into the car seat in the back seat, he would immediately arrest him and throw him into jail. How long, O oh Lord? How long? How long will it be before we treat one another with the dignity and respect and the love that we were taught as children of one family of God? Whether you are dealing with a personal challenge like infertility or a global crisis like the environment, you may find yourself in good company along with so many biblical characters throughout the pages of scripture who often cry out to God, how long, O Lord? 
Even Jesus asked this question. Jesus loved, Jesus taught, Jesus healed, Jesus fed, and then Jesus was accused and tried and executed like a common criminal. Barbara Brown Taylor describes that moment. From the cross, she said, Jesus pleaded for a word, any word from the God he could no longer hear. He asked for bread, and he got a stone. Finally, in the most profound silence of his life, Jesus died, believing himself forsaken by God. And some in our day even find themselves questioning whether God is speaking at all. This week in the office one day, Mike told me about a book, Mike Graves told me about a book that he is reading. It's a memoir by Timothy Egan called A Pilgrimage to Eternity. And in the book, Egan describes how he grew up in the Roman Catholic tradition, but no longer practices that tradition. He says of himself, I'm lapsed, but still listening. Lapsed, but listening. He wants to hear from God, even if he is not totally convinced that there still is such a God. How long, O oh Lord? How long? Habakkuk speaks for many of us when he expresses that sometimes it feels as if God has been mute for way too long, that God's silence can frustrate us, and our worry and our sadness begs for an answer. The book of Habakkuk takes the form of a back-and-forth dialogue. I think it's kind of comical that a book that begins questioning whether or not God is still speaking actually takes the form of a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. And so Habakkuk questions, and then God answers, and then Habakkuk pushes harder on God, and God replies again, and that's why we read this morning from both chapters 1 and chapters 2, so you could get a little sample of the flavor of the dialogue. Some folks hear in God's responsive words in chapter 2 that our job as the human race is to wait. Wait out the hard times. Try this on for size. When you leave for church, get in your car and go down to Children's Mercy Hospital and find your way into the oncology unit and find a mom cradling her two-year-old son with brain cancer and tell her, Eventually, it won't hurt so bad. Sometimes we answer Habakkuk's question, how long, O oh Lord, by just saying to ourselves or to one another, it's just a little longer. As a part of this dialogue, God says in Habakkuk, for this is still a vision of the appointed time. It speaks of the end. It does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it, and it will surely come. And my fear is that this answer trivializes our pain and makes it seem like the only problem here is just a little timing issue. But we use this answer often. We say it to ourselves. We say it to each other. We remember that eventually Habakkuk's homeland was restored and the Babylonian invaders lost their military might and Israel's temple was rebuilt. And so we say, oh, you know, eventually things will improve in Washington. Eventually, Joplin will, will rebuild after the tornado. Eventually, the Hurricane Katrina 
will, oh yes, eventually New Orleans will rebound. Eventually, Mike, where are you? Your back will feel better. And you know, we know sometimes that some of us, some of our friends face situations that are not gonna get better. And so then we again point to that wait answer. We say, God's timing has a long arc. Three days Jesus was in the grave, but then he rose. And so we say to the starving children in Africa, in the next life, there will be no hunger. And we say to those families whose homes have been bombed in Syria, in heaven, there are no bombs, no war. I don't know about you, but eventually does not cut it for me. Why would a God of love tell us, wait? Isn't there something else that God has to say in this dialogue with Habakkuk? How do we deal with what sometimes feels like deafening silence from the almighty creator of love? When I was just starting out in ministry, I used to go on retreat to this place out in rural Kansas, a prayer center that was directed by this amazing Roman Catholic priest named Father Ed Hayes. He wrote some of the most wonderful prayer books and spiritual guidance books, some of them so worn and tattered in my office. And in one of those books, he recounts a story that comes from ancient Christian lore. He said there was a young man who went out into the desert to visit an old monk. He finds the wise old monk sitting alone in the desert in front of the cave where he lives. He's sitting in the sunshine, petting his dog. And the visitor, a young man, asks the old monk, why do, is, why do people come out here and seek God and start to pray, but then nine months, 10 months, 12 months later, they just leave and go back to their regular lives? While others, like you, remain here for such a long time, seeking God and praying. And the old monk said, one day my dog and I were sitting here quietly in the sun, just as we are now, and suddenly a large white rabbit ran across in front of us. My dog jumped up, barking loudly, and took off after the big white rabbit. He chased the rabbit all over the hills with passion, and soon other dogs joined him, attracted by his barking. What a sight it was as those dogs crossed over the creek and up the stone embankments and through the brush and across the weeds. And gradually, slowly, the other dogs got tired and they dropped out of the pursuit. And then it was only my dog who continued after the white rabbit. The confused young visitor scratched his head and asked the monk, I don't get it. What is the connection between the rabbit chase? and the quest for God. And the monk replied, why did the other dogs not continue the chase? They had not seen the rabbit. They were only attracted by the barking of the dogs, but once you see the rabbit, you will never give up the chase. In the dialogue between God and Habakkuk, God reminds Habakkuk that he has seen the vision, and that is enough. In answer to our human longing, God says in Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain, so that a runner may read it. In the time of Habakkuk, 
a runner might be sent out to the towns and the villages with a decree from the king. To write a vision is to engage not in what you and I do at the office or in a not-for-profit in a strategic planning process. To write a vision is to remember what is God's vision for life, love and grace and peace and joy and justice. Make it plain on the tablets, God says. Write it with a sharpie on a placard. The vision is God's answer. Tommy Tomlinson wrote an article in the Charlotte Observer a number of years ago called One Shining Moment. He recalls being a little boy, nine years old, and playing in the midget league in baseball one summer. He said he wasn't the worst player on the team, but he was up for discussion. He spent most of his time that summer playing baseball way out in the outfield, usually in right field, and if a ball came his way, he was just as likely to drop it or have it bonk him on the head as he was to catch it. But somehow, his team was pretty good, and they made it into the championship, and by some fluke, he was placed in left field during that game, and there you often get a lot of action. He said, we were up by one run in the last inning. They got a couple of guys on base, and with two outs, Jerry Woodward came up. Jerry was 12. He had facial hair and a girlfriend and a fast fastball that looked like a meteor. He hit home runs that broke windshields. And on about the third pitch, he hit a colossal fly ball out to left field where I was standing there alone with my glove. We lived in what was about a 45-minute drive away from Sears, the only place one could buy good gloves. Those were more than we could afford anyway, and so my mama went to the Rexall drugstore and found on the toy, toy aisle in the back of the store where they keep the plastic pails and shovels for the beach, a little plastic baseball glove. Maybe it was vinyl or naugahyde, but it was barely bigger than my hand. And so now this fly ball, which Jerry Woodward had sent halfway to the moon, was coming down, and I waited there with my tiny drugstore baseball glove. I held up my little glove, and the ball dropped in. People get old and forget things. Sometimes they get Alzheimer's and they can't remember their own name, but I'm pretty sure I will never forget that moment. The vision, the vision sustained him, and it is the vision of God that sustains us. The vision does not wait. It comes to us now as we partner with God and as God partners with us. Our faith is not eventually. It is now. No one really knows who this Habakkuk guy was, but we do know that the word Habakkuk means embrace. God and Habakkuk, God and God's people embrace they share the vision, not eventually, now. Last week I had dinner with a 
fellow pastor, Tom R., and the two of us were talking about our trips to Israel, to the Holy Land. We were sharing how fun it was to see some of those biblical history sites, some of the great archaeological places. But we were also sharing about the ongoing sadness of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And Tom says he can remember being there years ago and touring all day long, and then he would get picked up in the evening by a man named Bashar Awad, who was a Palestinian Christian. And Bashar would take him around to visit with different families who had been affected by the war and by oppression. And one night, near midnight, he was coming home with Bashara, and he looked at him and he said, it must be hard. After all these generations and wars and land disputes and pain, it must be, well, it must be impossible to still have hope. And Bashara said, you know what? Jesus rose from the dead about 20 minutes from here. It's impossible for me to not hope. What do you think? Is God still speaking? <laughs>